This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Hey guys, and welcome back to this special episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is normally a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time, but not this week. This week, we're going to be doing a, a, a retrospective on uh, however many films we saw in 2020. Sadly, not as much as we would have liked, but there's a couple. Um, so I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. Ready to talk about, like, I, I honestly need... I don't need any more than my two hands to, to talk about the movies of 2020 for me. I, I got a couple more than those, but yeah, this uh, was so depressing. Going, I went back and found my notes we did that we did back in the beginning of 2020 on our most anticipated films of 2020, and uh, fully half of them aren't going to be on my most anticipated list for 2021. <laughs> so that's how this year went. So real quick off the top, uh, I'm going to just embarrass you. How many films have you seen uh, okay. uh, this so, year? So if we're talking like narrative films, well, uh, I'm including Hamilton. Just okay. So. All right, gotcha. So so I'll break it down like this. I've seen nine traditional narrative films, um, and then there is a an animated short film, Hamilton, the the Middle Ditch and Schwartz, uh, a documentary, My Octopus Teacher, uh, and the limited series, Tiger King. Beggars cannot be choosers. Um, so I've seen uh, 45 films, that's not, that's including Hamilton, but not including any other TV. And uh, 19 of those would have been home video releases of some sort or, of an, or another, um, which is just so embarrassing. <laughs> Normally, hopefully, like I think last year I had like 70 and like five or six were streaming releases. So what we so we have just a bunch of different categories we'll talk about. Hopefully we'll have enough to say for, for some of them. <laughs> some of them is not going to be a lot. Others other topics will have a lot to say. Uh, another fun thing th- that I've had at least for the la- latter half of this year was that despite the fact that no almost no movies have been coming out ever since Tenet came out, they've been doing a lot of reruns of old of classic films and some not so classic films. Over the last, what was that? I've been August, the last you know four or five months of the year, and uh, I calculated it. I saw <laughs> I've been to the theater eighteen times just since the on only reruns <laughs> since the theater's open. That's not counting you know the dozen or so new movies that I caught since then. So I it's probably my patronage alone has kept my local AMC's doors open. <laughs> nice over these uh. These these are the last couple of months. You're fighting the good fight, saving cinema, and all that. You can thank me later. Uh, so, James, what were some uh, cool reruns that you caught this year? So, I honestly only remember two. Unfortunately, I it's only been recently that I've started logging rewatches on Letterboxd. Um, hmm. And so, I I the only ones that I remember actually being able to sleep uh, to see was. Uh, some friends at church rented out the theater for a white Christmas viewing, uh, and that was super fun. It's one of my favorite uh, Christmas movies. Um, and then, um, I forget when, but me and a friend got to go see the uh, Godfather trilogy, or, the, or not the trilogy, the Godfather Part Three: Coda, Death of Michael mm-hmm. Corleone, uh, which was my first, like, I haven't even seen Part Three. Um uh, 
so it was cool having my first exposure to that be in the theaters. Um, that's all I remember. That's funny because uh, pre-lockdown earlier this year, I went uh, to a screening of The Godfather that was actually put on by uh, the local university, ASU. It had like a film professor. So he had he, he put he put on the movie. He had a, like a half hour lecture before the movie started and then like an hour lecture or kind of Q, lecture slash Q&A after the film, you know, all the going into all the history and, you know, the, the reaction to the film themes and all of that. It was a it was a really cool experience. Um, that was also my first time seeing it. Dang, man, I would love that. Yeah, I haven't I haven't uh, seen any of the others since. And I'm kind of ashamed of that, but uh, I do want to eventually, you know, catch up and watch the next two films. I, I hear that at least one of them is pretty good. Uh Three, you know, I maybe it's just because the recut was my first exposure, or I don't know. I can't imagine it being that different. But I actually really like three. Coppola's as bad as everybody says she is, but that's all anybody talks about. <laughs> Turns out most of the rest of the movie is very good. Another really fun pre pre lockdown viewing I saw was Hot Fuzz, and this was oh like, nice. I, I I don't know what they're called. It's kind of like a themed uh you know watch party. Where they had two guys dressed up as uh, you know Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, and and they were like doing a comedy routine. They passed out like felt mustaches, uh, aviator glasses, um, and every time they would say like for the, for the greater good, the whole thing would go for the greater good. Like it was just like kind of a quote along. It was it was a lot of fun. It was kind of a packed house. I've never been to one of you know one of those type things before. Uh, a couple other awesome reruns post lockdown were. Um, I got to see the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers extended editions nice. in theaters for the first time. I I only saw Return of the King back you know when it was first coming through. Uh, it's Monsters Inc. It's a good movie. Uh, Poltergeist was I shockingly really 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 good. Uh, I got to see that for the first time. Then I saw, uh, saw rewatches of Pan's Labyrinth and Inception. Oh man, both fantastic. H- hadn't seen either in forever, and both were just as amazing as I remembered. And one of the best theater viewing, uh, you know, post COVID, my boss rented out a theater for like our for our our, our uh, company Christmas party. He rented out the local El Almo Draft House, so we went in there. And just they paid for all the food, so we just kind of gorged ourselves and watched uh, trains, planes, and automobiles. Oh, nice! Uh, which is just a great movie. So that that was a blast. So yeah, a lot of great uh, rewatches this year. So, uh, next category is movies we wanted to see this year, but missed. What do you got there, James? Uh, so most of these are, uh, like I, I try to be as well prepared as I can for the Oscars when they come around. So a lot of these are, are there primarily cause I, I honestly know very little about these. It's just, there's a lot of, um, of Oscar buzz around them. Uh, so I had Nomadland there. I know very little about it. Just, I really love Francis McDormand, um, and that's got a lot of buzz around it. Uh, but I think I think both that and Minari, which is my next one, aren't going to be mm-hmm. available for streaming uh, or select theaters until February. I'm probably going to just count those as 2021 movies. Like if they didn't get a, if they, I think they only yeah. had like festival releases so far. Uh, I was going to try. I had a double feature in mind for Promising Young Woman, and uh, I believe it's, I didn't write this one down, but it's uh, I th- I Let Him Go. Is that the yeah. name? I really wanted to catch both of those. Uh, unfortunately, I ended up getting sick, and before results could come in, kind of missed my opportunity there. I wanted to see The Father with uh, Anthony Hopkins mm. and uh, 
Olivia Coleman. Really, really cool trailer. Uh, and for some reason, like, sad old man movies really get me. Like, just old men with all of their life behind them being just generally sad is something that really, like, really gets to me. So I'm like, I'll get my fix there. And then, so I'm really into horror, as the podcast has made clear. Yeah, I know. And uh, I think there were opportunities to see Saint Maud earlier, but things kind of closed down. It they completely pulled it. I think it was only in like select theaters, but apparently it's going to be hitting theaters again in February as well. So I'll try to catch that when it comes out. And then one that I don't think was ever really going to be big in theaters around here. So I'll just have to catch it streaming uh, as an Australian horror film called Relic. Uh, and this is one that I know nothing about. It's just a lot of people that, who I really trust when it comes to horror really, really loved it and talked it up. Um, and then, so the last ones are um, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. I know nothing about that. Uh, and then, oh wait, no, there's a couple more. There's that one. There's uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I want to see especially because of um, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, well, really both of these because of him, that one and De Five Bloods. I wasn't able to catch either of those yet, but they'll I'll probably end up watching them before long. Uh, and then lastly, Mank, because uh, I'm a I'm a Fitcher fanboy. It's just I watched Citizen Kane for the very first time this year, and I, I heard it's very Mank is very inside baseball, so I kind of I wanna brush up on some Citizen Kane history and I plan on watching the uh the Roger Ebert commentary recorded over it um, before I, I dive into that. So th that's it for me. I saw Mank. It was the movie. <laughs> um, so the ones I, I wanted to see but missed. Uh, first one is that the big one would have been Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, big Sorkin fan. Oh, yeah. I was bummed to miss that. Bad Education. This is Hugh Jackman uh, from the director of uh, Thoroughbreds from, I think, 2018. I've heard a lot of praises about that one. The Five Bloods. Uh, I don't know. Palm Springs. This is uh, Andy Samberg. Oh, yeah, um, that one is kind of man, there's, there's more than I thought. comedy. <laughs> and then another uh, one that I only heard about recently, but sounds interesting, is Another Round. Um, oh, yes. The Scandinavian film starring uh, uh, Mads Mikkelsen about drunks or something. <laughs> well, yeah. A lot of drinking involved and supposedly like a, a celebration of life and another, uh, I suppose, I think it's another sad old man movie, kind of midlife crisis type thing. Um, so that one it sounded kind of interesting. I want to check it out. Madge Mickelson, of course, is awesome. Oh, so good. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple more kind of just that, like, probably bad films like The Witches <laughs> or Mulan <laughs> or like um, Ben Wheatley's Rebecca. Like, I, I kind of want to watch just kind of as completionism but and I, I i'm not like i don't think to be amazing or anything now we get to a, 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 a category that's uh i think kind of close to both of our hearts most underrated film at least that we've seen of 2020 james uh so we have a shared one so i'll i'll let you take that one uh the first one i'm gonna bring up and i, I only have two here um but my first one is gretel and hansel um mm. so this was super early in the year, like before lockdowns and everything. People did not like it. Yeah, and and so, but but it was like it was a very tepid thing. It was like ah, not not great. I think it's like sixties, and nobody really hated it. Definitely nobody loved it. But it was just it like came and went with with no 
no real reception beyond that. And so a friend and I were basically deciding between two films we could watch because we only had time to watch one. It was a, it was a late showing. And I was originally pitching The Turning because I was saying, well, you know, we've got we've got these two. Neither are going to be good. So let's go with the fun, like the one that's going to be comically bad, because I've just heard it's it's truly terrible. Uh, and he he talked me into going into the one that might have a chance. And I like I begrudgingly went because I'm like, well, if it's meant like this is going to be it's just going to be boring because really bad movies sometimes are entertaining and how bad they are. But it, I'm ending, or I ended up being really glad that we went because. So Gretel and Hansel is amazing. It, it's it's not fantastic or anything, um, you know. It's it's fairly heavy handed. It's it, it's not the most profound film I've ever seen. But what I really loved about it was it's got a really really strong atmosphere, like just a really cool, eerie vibe. It's not always overtly horror but it's just always unsettled like unsettling is is the best word i describe it everything just looks a little off every line delivery is just a little bit off there's just something off about everything in a good way uh, the cinematography is super cool um it's a it's got a weird synth score that shouldn't work for it but i really really was into um and i, I found the entire third act just incredibly visually striking it was is really cool to see what uh oz perkins who's actually the the son of uh anthony perkins um yeah. what what he was able to do as a director with with a really low budget and just these weird crazy ideas he had in his head so i i i don't know i like i said i i understand not loving it but some of the more negative responses to it uh, I think we're we're pretty unwarranted. I I had a really good time with it. Um, so the first one for me was uh, Underwater. This was the uh, the Kristen Stewart uh, horror, you know, submarine horror thriller. Not submarine. It was a uh, what, what's uh, underwater research station and deep sea research station movie with a kind of a Lovecraftian twist. There's a lot of uh, like James Cameron's The Abyss in there, and. It's not amazing, uh, uh, but it's it was just very intense and gripping, and it, you know it kept you on the edge of your seat for the entirety of the runtime. There's a lot of really <laughs> very uncomfortable situations. Kristen Stewart, you know, is a very engaging lead. Uh, I was just a, it was just a very solid thriller, and it got kind of bashed when it was released. Oh, it's just another dumb alien ripoff you know brainless monster movie and it's not, it's not the most you know the most amazing movie but it was i found it to be just very very solid and i had a good time with it and then the other one is emma which i i will t i'm not gonna talk about too much here because i have i will mention it later on in our list um but i feel like this one kind of came and went and it has a, a very small vocal fandom I'm not sure if all of it is made up of just Johnny Flynn fans, but <laughs> it's, it does not, I don't, I think it's one of the best Austin adaptations that I've seen. I found it just delightful. And I, it's one of the, one of the movies I saw at the beginning of the year and I've just been thinking about it all year. And I, I keep going back to YouTube to watch various scenes and not until Taylor joy is just delightful. I'll talk about it more later, but I don't think that movie got the recognition it deserved. Yeah, and that, that is our shared pick here. 
Next up is a pleasant surprises movies you weren't looking forward to, but turned out pretty good. Yeah, the only one I actually have listed here is Gretel and Hansel. I had a I had a little double dip, and I already really you know went into this, uh, but I I do think it, it it definitely fits the bill here because it was something that I I begrudgingly went into and like literally walked out pleasantly surprised with it. So uh, you know, if people are still looking for streaming stuff, I th- I think it's worth a look. Uh, for me, then the first one was Bad Boys for Life. And the reason I have this here is because, one, I'm not the biggest fan of the first two films, and two, the trailers were kind of terrible. Like, it's, like Particularly on uh, Martin Lawrence, he just looked, uh, just not to be insulting, but he, like, he just kind of looked uh, kind of old and out of it. He just looked like he didn't, be- like they- he didn't belong in an action movie. The- all the jokes fell kind of flat, and it just looked like it was trying too hard and just it had no life in it. But then I watched it, and surprisingly, Martin, La- Martin Lawrence was like my favorite part of the movie. And it, it, not only is it very funny, like there's a, a really, there is a lot of heart to the movie. It's, it's it's dumb. It's a big, stupid action film. And it, you know, it gets kind of overly convoluted plot wise, but it was just like, it was fun. It was funny. Uh, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are still fantastic together. You know, they were always the best part of that series together and they still had it. But just the big surprise for me was just how emotionally invested I was. Obviously, Will Smith is like when he wants to be, he could be just an incredible dramatic actor. And this film really makes use of it. But the way they, they, the way they developed the friendship between these two characters and their bromance and really allowed Martin Lawrence to kind of shine and have this kind of reflection on age and all of, and, uh, and, and you know, it's kind of that, uh, you know, I'm too old for this kind of, this kind of a shtick, but it was very well done. So a very, a very pleasant surprise there. And the other one is Fat Man. This is mm, the man, Mel Gibson as grumpy old Santa Claus action movie where a 12-year-old hires a, an assassin played by Walton Goggins to kill Santa Claus. And I remember I watched this trailer and I was like, I and it, it, it kind of broke my brain because I didn't understand what is this. Like, it, it feels like it should be a, a complete spoof. But the trailer played entire, almost entirely straight. So it was like, I, I, I don't. How could you have a serious movie about a twelve-year-old hiring an assassin to kill Santa Claus? Like, it, it didn't make any sense. And I watched the movie, and it's played pretty straight, and it kind of works. <laughs> it is the weirdest movie. It should not work, but it finds just this perfect tone between sincerity. And it's, 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 there is a very strong comedic satirical twist to it. But it's also pretty sincere, and it walks this beautiful line. And it probably won't work for everybody, but it just you know it hit my sweet spot, and I had a lot of fun with it. Mel Gibson, you know, he is still you know he's had his ups and downs, but he is still a superstar as far as you know talent is concerned. As this gruff old Logan esque Santa Claus, um, I'm forgetting the actress's name who plays his wife. Um, uh, Marianne, uh, Marianne Jean Baptiste, uh, she is re- excellent. They're really wonderful together. Walton Goggins is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the weirdest movie you'll ever see, but I, I really liked it. Yeah, that was one that I heard. Like, I, I was sold from the trailer. I'm like, I, I, this is something that I need to see, and I still plan <laughs> on seeing it. Uh, but then, like, the reception was kind of what you're saying, where it's like, why does this work the way it does? 
And so, like, hearing more and more people be like, I actually really dug it, makes me even more excited to finally hit it. So uh, now for some negativity, because it's fun, uh, <laughs> we're going to our least favorite films of the year. Uh, James, what is what, what some of your least favorite films this year? Uh, so there weren't a, a lot. In fact, I, there's not even there's not a film that I just outright disliked. So if I if I'm just having to stick with what is technically my least favorite, uh, it is Wonder Woman 1984. And again, like keep in mind, I. I I watched nine films this year. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I usually, I would usually only catch the things that I heard good things about. Um, so yeah, this, this takes my, my least favorite spot. Uh, and funny enough, so I, I really enjoy the first one, but I found it pretty overrated, especially as the response to it continued to go on and the, the way it's now defined in the larger DCEU and stuff. I just, it, I, I was never the one clamoring for the sequel. Um, and then when the trailers came out, I, I didn't really feel a shift in that. I, I, I'm not the biggest uh, Donner Superman fan, and it very much felt like this was intentionally kind of going after that kind of vibe. Um, this, you know, this shiny, bright 80s aesthetic, which a lot of the times I like, but when it's it's paired with the genre. You kind of know what their, what their intention is. Um, but what's, what's funny is during the first half of it, I actually thought I was going to have to eat some crow because I really was enjoying it. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed the, the double intros and despite the ridiculousness of so much of it, like the, the over the top nature of Pedro, uh, Pedro Pascal, I ended up really loving all of his screen time. Yeah. And, and, you know, Kristen Wiig, this, this is like the fourth, like you've got Jim Carrey and Batman forever, Jamie Foxx and amazing Spider-Man two and Guy Pierce and Iron Man. 3. Like this is, we've seen this character so many times, but I, I don't know. I, what I appreciated about her, even especially in the first half was like, it wasn't, here's the one scene to establish why she sucks and then everything after, or like why her life, you know, isn't great. And then every scene afterwards, she's this villain. Like she felt like a real character for a decent amount of time before the, you know, like the plot happened to her. And so I was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm actually going to have to back up on everything I said. And, and I was, I was going to be happy to, cause I was really, I really want to like, uh, all of all of the the films that he's really movies in general, um, but then like the movie is super long and it feels like the plot doesn't actually happen until about halfway through almost, and when the plot actually starts happening, the, the script just falls apart from almost every angle for me. Like I I spend so I spent so much time being confused why. Th- Certain things were happening. Motivations felt really vague and ill-defined. The logic of the MacGuffin felt incredibly ill-defined. And the third act is just this weird bit of nonsense to me. And so, I I don't know, I found that by the time things really started moving, I was going back and forth between bored and confused. And it, it landed in a place that I wasn't super happy with. Yeah, I, I I really don't have much to say about it. I kind of agree with most of, most of what you said. It was it was it was fine. <laughs> so I did have a couple. The first is uh, Paul W S Anderson's Monster Hunter. 
this is the first uh, Paul W.S. Anderson film I've seen, and it completely lived up to the man's uh, <laughs> reputation. Uh, it's terrible. Um, I, I, I did see it in theaters just because you know, it, it's, it's locked down. I'm desperate for movies and explosions and monsters. Uh, and it does deliver explosions and monsters. And there's, there is a, there's a, a, a fun, uh, kind of, there's a fun angle to it just because of how absolutely stupid it, he, stupid it is. And just, it, he, he goes for it. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't half ass anything, but the man is just such a deeply incompetent filmmaker. <laughs> there are so many just incomprehensible editing choices, music choices, just pacing and plotting. Like he, he, he writes and directs all his films, but there's like, you, you kind of find it hard to believe that there's actually even a script for these things. Cause it, there's no plot. There's no character development. There's no arcs. It's just things happen. You know, this is a scene where we fight monsters Oh, another scene, and we fight monsters. Another scene, and it's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's beyond terrible, but kind of fun in it is terribleness and just how gonzo it is. Um, the other one is uh, Artemis Fowl. <sighs> this one hurts. This, this this was on my most anticipated for twenty twenty list. Um, I'm a big fan of Kenneth Branagh as a director. Uh, the concept was fun. I mean, everyone probably knows how bad this movie is. People <laughs> it got absolutely ready to cross the coals when it came out, but it's it's not good. It it's like it, there there is some evidence that it was it got kind of a Suicide Squad treatment. Um, there seems to be like significant subplots, or even actually, th there is a good chance that the core plot of the film was changed. Like the main MacGuffin and, and plot that all that, that sets the plot into motion and all the action in the film is surrounding. There's, there's a good chance that was actually changed in post-production and was reshot and restructured to make the core MacGuffin something different. And it, <laughs> it feels like that. It's not quite as bad as suicide squad at that level, but it is just incoherently edited. But also, I, I don't think it ever would have been a very good film. Just the design is like this is like Brando is has he's he you know, design has always been one of his strong points. Like thinking about like Thor or uh, the his Disney Cinderella or Murder on the Orient Express. Like he creates these gorgeous worlds. Like, but the design for the fairies in this was just very the 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 actor of uh, Shaw who plays Artemis Fowl. I, I hate bashing child actors, but he just wasn't great. Um, so just nothing about it really worked. Everything just felt like a really lame kind of 2010 uh, Percy Jackson wannabe kind of thing, which makes me very, very sad because uh, Sperana, and he's usually pretty good. Like, even when his films are aren't great, they're usually just kind of fun in how much he goes for it. But even even that aspect like was was kind of missing here. It just felt so safe and uninspired. Yeah, I, I've actually heard a lot about this through a couple of different podcasts I've listened to. And I, I hear that a lot where, like, it, it sounds like it's even from, like, people pretty close to the source. Like, kind of confirming this, what, what's on screen is not at all what the original script was and was heavily changed and gutted and rearranged. There's a video uh, from a channel called Nando V Movies. It's like it's a pretty long video. And he goes through like various deleted scenes and like scenes that look like they were um uh what's what's the term ADR'd and like he he does a really thorough job of kind of laying out the case for 
why he thinks this movie was completely changed in post-production yeah I, I know somebody who watched it with with that video in mind and they're like when when your attention is drawn to that is it almost you know he said it became kind of a fun watch because it's like it's spot the adr spot the spot mm-hmm. the moment they took advantage of his head's not like his mouth is technically not visible make him say something it, it's one that i'm weirdly curious about i don't know if i'll ever make the time i think i i really like picking directors and binging their filmographies and i i love brana so i'm actually in a in a brana watch through i only have i only have one more film actually now one of his more obscure ones called the, uh, like a midwinter's tale nice yeah it was it was fun this this some not good ones uh sleuth not very good but it's wild it's a well, it's great it's crazy you know movie. i'll get there i'm down for a wild movie uh, uh-huh. but anyway so i don't know if i do that i may end up catching it but outside of that i'll i'll i probably just settle for like these youtube breakdowns okay moving on to one that i've looked forward to our favorite scenes of 2020 uh james you start with your favorite scene okay so i'm going to start off with the gentleman is, uh... oh uh, real quick i will try to be as vague and non-spoiler as possible but some of the ones here they will spoil so if if we start talking about a film that you haven't seen we'll announce what we're saying first you know just skip forward a minute or 30 seconds or whatever um but we'll, there will be a, a few spoilers for some of these films uh so I'm, I'm starting with the gentleman this is an early like january release but this had a couple scenes well really i mean i i thought the movie was just a blast start to finish but scenes that really stick out to me, uh, the first one is uh, Colin Farrell's introduction. This scene, just the way he presents himself, his body language. Colin Farrell, whenever he's able to just let his incredible Irish accent be part of what defines him, it, it, it's so weird. I don't know of another actor where like I, I compartmentalize it like, like it's two different people. The the scene where all of like the young guys try to like try to gather around him and they don't realize that he's the coach. Just his outfit is incredible. The tracksuit. The, the the plaid <laughs> tracksuit with his little baller's cat. It's so freaking cool. It shouldn't be, but like I love his character. I love his look. Everything about him cracks me up. It's just the way that scene that whole scene goes down is they realize who he is and he's like you know, they're throwing insults at him and like he's just insulting them by ripping apart their insults. He's it's like he's one of my favorite characters from the movie. And that like everything about that scene is just fantastic. It's so funny. I want to review. I want to do a detours on this film so badly, but I don't think I ever can because I try not to cuss too much <laughs> and I could never, ever talk about this film without quoting it. And if I quoted it. Um, I would, uh, <laughs> we couldn't get away. We're not, we're not would, British or Irish work. or anything. Like it's all, you get a, a pass with the way they string some of these things together because they're British. It just comes out funny. Guy Ritchie turns swearing into just beautiful, beautiful cinema. Yeah. As uh, Hugh Grant would say, but yeah, I it's try like not poetry. to talk like that. <laughs> so I let other like, people do so I can enjoy that. Yeah. Um, so a couple of mine are also from the gentleman. Um, the big one for me is uh, Charlie Hunnam rolls a joint. <laughs> uh, this is he goes into this apartment full of um, heroin addicts, and 
I've always liked Charlie Hunnam back, even back in his Pacific Rim days. Like, I, I, I kind of viewed him like Taylor Kitsch, where like there's there's something that's not quite connecting. Like they they always they just feel a little uncomfortable, you know, being thrust into this star status. But then as they do more and more, but I always thought like I I kind of like him, and then as they do more and more character roles, like I I kind of figure out why. And Charlie Hunnam was like that. It wasn't until um, Lost City of Z that I was like, okay, this guy is actually a legit good actor. And then this movie came out and it just like blows all his previous performances out of the water. The way he just kind of strolls in this room and just dominates these dudes with pure personality, just the withering looks he gives and and some of the, the greatest insults that I cannot repeat here, <laughs> like in film history. But just the way he just slowly, calmly, sh- just verbally shreds everyone in the room and just dominates the scene. If you've seen the scene, you know what I'm talking about. As he rolls a joint, and it's just his line delivery is exquisite. Yeah, it's it, it is just there are so many just entrancing scenes. Just watching amazing actors with amazing dialogue do their thing. Uh, that's one of the things Guy Ritchie's always been great at. And this scene was just heaven for me. Yeah. I, I was kind of like, like, yeah, I, I may have even been a bit more negative. All, all I saw was uh Pacific Rim with him in it for a while. And like, he can't keep an accent in that movie to save his life. And I, I don't know. There was something about him that rubbed me a weird way, but then I watched uh green street hooligans and, even when he's not amazing in that, he's got this like young, scrappy energy about him that was just like really infectious to me. He, it, he was a character that I loved, and then saw Lost City of Z and thought he was fantastic in that. And then he ended up being like, I already said Colin Farrell was maybe my favorite. I don't know. There's a lot of people I like a lot in this movie, so maybe I need to watch it again. But he's also one of my favorites. Uh, also, definitely developed like a man crush on him in this. Uh, some incredible cardigans, and his beard is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, one of my other favorite scenes comes from this film as well, uh, and it involves Charlie Hunnam. It's whenever it's it's the scene after that when the guy. Uh, well, I'll, all I'll say is they need to get back cell phones, and <laughs> it is this whole chase scene with this incredible like this track that fits the vibe of the scene so incredibly well and just mm-hmm. watching like bulky uh, Charlie Hunnam run around the streets chasing in all of these suit, kids like a, a trench coat yeah in this trench coat with this and like the just the way the scene plays out uh he does this weird little thing like he's just you know without spoilers he's basically telling them to like back up but the way he does it it's like <laughs> It's it's now part of like just like I if if I do it I look like an absolute idiot but the way he does it is incredible, and so that that entire chase scene is just like I felt giddy in the theater. It was just such a fun thing to watch. Uh, my next one is also from the gentleman. Uh, it's it's kind of a a two scenes paired together. The first one is a uh, dry eyes tries to uh, to buy. Mickey Pearson's business, and then uh, Mickey Pearson confronts Lord George. Uh, the two kind of similar scenes where they just involve very tense conversations around tables punctuated with really 
like shocking, explosive, intense violence. Um, and uh, Matthew McConaughey, like he's always been great. And every movie I see with him, just he just gets better and better. A very little seen film, uh, film from the previous year, uh, White Boy Rick. He was really good in that. In this, he's just so beautifully suave. There are so many amazing suits in this film. Oh, I know. This uh, is the best Tweed dressed has, movie of Tweed all. Tweed has like, never looked better. Um, but just the, these conversations either between hi, uh, him and Henry Golding, who is just one of the most charismatic guys in the world. Um, I don't know the actor who plays Lord George, but just these conversations. And then when the violence explodes and the music kicks in and, and uh, McConaughey just starts raging... I, it's another one of those things that just, it just kind of like blows you back in your seat and you're just like you forget to breathe as it's happening mm. it's it's so good oh there was one more scene that i'll guess i'll just i'll throw in real quick because i can't believe i didn't write it down and mention it there's a fight scene that basically plays out as a music video and it is <laughs> such a cool little idea and i i think it plays out in a really cool way in the movie uh, and so for the next film that has some of my favorites, uh, I went with uh, Christopher Nolan's epic Tenet. Uh, for the first scene I chose, uh, I chose uh, the opening opera scene. I got that too. I, that, so watching this completely devoid of the context of whatever, like what this movie is going to become, like open it with the, these beautiful wide angles and you just all of these seats are encompassing the frame there's something like there's there's something about how he's able to capture the scale of that location in some of these shots and the images of of these guys all decked out in SWAT gear just like trying to sidle past all of these seats and stuff it's it's almost completely about imagery to me, but like the the sound design, I have a lot of problems with the sound design in the movie, which is not breaking new ground. But the way the sound is like everything plays out in here, where I, everything is supposed to be hectic and you're not really hearing anything, and the bullets are just shredding through chairs and stuff. It's it's such an incredible, visceral, beautifully shot action sequence. Yeah, as it was opening up, and the SWAT guys were coming in, and there's several shots where it's just like tracking shots of these dudes all running like belting full speed in perfect unison and setting up around the doors and rolling in the gas tanks like the nolan's direction is so tight the cinematography is perfect the sound design uh Gorenson's score is is just like mm. blaring and th- th- this like super fast beat um like you know, the the phrase you know don't try to understand it feel it it's been both used as a defense for the film and a kind of a mockery of it but I think it's just moments like this where, where I think it's referring to just, it's like, just feel it. And it, the, the movie just kind of bowls over you and pounds you into submission with, with the sound design and the, the, the sheer propulsion of what is happening throughout that entire sequence. Like I, I knew, like, I'm, I'm going to love this movie, aren't I? Just from that opening scene. And so uh, the other one I have from this movie is it is the final raid. I will, I will withhold the detail, the specific details of this. The only thing I'll say is like you ca- you catch a glimpse of it in the trailers. It's you you have this flyover shot of a huge mass of soldiers running towards these ruins as there's explosions and stuff. So without getting into what's going on there, uh, and I still have a bit of confusion as to what's going on there fully. I've, I only get to see it the <laughs> once. Um, 
But I've seen it three times and I still have some confusion about what's going <laughs> okay. on there. Well, we'll see if it clears up then. Um, there's another one where like I I will admit I'm not completely emotionally checked into this movie all the time. But whenever I just let the visuals and the staging just take over, it is it's phenomenal direction. And there are moments throughout this this climactic raid in this area that just there's a specific thing that happens. And it involves a tower is all I say. I'm like, the, when that <laughs> it, it's, in, it's, it's in all the trailers. So you can say it. Okay. So a tower blows up, it falls apart, reassembles and blows up at another angle. And it's like watching it happen in real time. How? <laughs> like I, it was one of the, just like, I, I Without like the only description that feels right is just one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a movie. Like it was, it blew my mind that such like it's. I mean, it's not even really a simple idea, but it's it's like a, and, a clip that lasts. And you four know, seconds. it's not CG because it's Nolan. Like he did he did it for real, but I don't my my mind just kind of refuses to understand the combination of backwards and forwards physics. So it's like I can't even like try and think about it because my mind just like seizes. But it's amazing. Yeah. So it's and that's that's like the big one. But there are moments throughout this whole thing where because we spend so much of it just kind of running back and forth across this battlefield, and anywhere you look, there's something weird and awesome happening. So so that that whole last scene, just just in terms of pure like pure visual spectacle, is pretty mind blowing. Um, so the, the next one is kind of a, a mild spoiler. If you don't want any spoilers at all, just skip for about a minute. Uh, but it's, it's like two um, kind of mirrored co- confrontations between uh, Elizabeth Debicki's cat and Kenneth Branagh's Sator. Um, if you've seen the film, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Just, they, have that very, <laughs> they have a very tense relationship. And there are two scenes where it, 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 they kind of – where it explodes. And the first scene is just – like Kenneth Branagh is kind I – I would kind of describe him as a rather adorable man in most of his – roles he's usually just very charming but here he plays like this squat thick-necked russian brute and he's terrifying you know the, the, this moment where he explodes is one is like one of the more disturbing sequences i've seen this year and then the kind of the, the the later scene which i i can't talk about at all because it would be pretty serious spoilers um but a lot of people have criticized uh the character uh of Kat, uh, Debicki's character. I actually really liked her in the movie. I, I liked her journey. Like there are some lines and, and like one particular choice she makes that I don't like, but overall I, I find it a very compelling character and like kind of the emotional catharsis in the final scene that I'm talking about where they have their, their confrontation together. I found very satisfying. Yeah. I, she's, she ended up walking away. My favorite character of the film, I, the, the last one you're referring to, and again, we'll we'll avoid real spoilers, but that that's one that I I really did enjoy. I feel like she was really able to just act and and make this person a real character. It was so satisfying, like after what she'd been through. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the next one that I have is actually it's a movie that I was planning on watching, and then it got the fast track because of you, which is The Vast of Night. Uh, one I actually watched last night. Hmm. The there's a lot of moments. This 
the the vibe that this movie has is one like it's just it immediately gets points from me which is just like it's it's all about mystery and intrigue and those little moments where you make a, a tiny little discovery and it just sends goosebumps you know all over your arms uh and th- this movie to me it's just it's that sustained it's like here's this little thing and it's not it's not this three act thing of I mean, the movie has its acts but it, it's not this this thing of like then something is revealed and it's the whole thing changes it's just this constant bit of discovery and intrigue and more is happening when we're trying to find like get to the bottom of whatever is going on and and the scene that i i that really stuck with me the most um and it partly because it was just as somebody who wants to eventually be able to make films was just such an inspiration because it's just it's awesome because it's just a cool idea that they executed on uh and it was made for seven hundred thousand dollars which is awesome (laughs) but it's it's a scene that starts at the the girl at the switchboard and in a single take just goes all the way to this big basketball game which a lot of the film revolves around and like just the camera just moves around this game being played up through the stands and out the window and then across the other side of town to the radio station mm. where the other guy works it's i'm sure they blend they i don't maybe they blend it somewhere like as it goes out the window i don't know how but it was it's an incredibly long very involved take We've seen long takes before, but I've never seen anything quite like this. Yeah, it's just such a it and this movie's this movie uses wonners a lot. And I feel like it almost created its own visual style of that. Like with very low to the ground angles and this kind of weird zippy almost fast forwarded, but not not really. It doesn't feel like that kind of cheap evil dead quick zoom. Like it's it's just this really low angle looking up that's exploring this space and uh, like there's scenes throughout i I really love the whole movie start to finish but this one was the one i'm like this is a like these guys are doing really cool things this is a real filmmaker and i'm i'm just like super excited to be seeing what i'm seeing right now that whenever that thing started the fact that like because the whole scene is about it's basically just a transition from what she's doing to what he's doing and instead of a cut it's this incredible take that explores this small town geography and this game that's brought the whole town together and highlights their own isolation. It's so cool. Well, my next scene is another, another is the is the another incredibly long wonder that takes place the shot before <laughs> what you're talking about. It's which is the uh, like nine or ten minute scene of I forget, the main, the main female lead. I forget her name, but. Her just at the switchboard. It's just one shot of her at the you know, the small town switchboard as she's cycling through these various calls coming in and calling her friend at the radio station. They're trying to isolate a sound, and people are calling in, say, "I," you know, with information. And it's just one shot of her just plugging and unplugging a bunch of um of uh you know connecting cables and talking with various people and people calling in and. I, I didn't even realize it was one shot until it ended. I was like, wait, was that one shot? We <laughs> round like 10 minutes like, oh, that was all one take. Um, but it, it's just another example of how arresting, you know, Peterson is able to make this film with, 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 with the simplest of techniques, just 
it had to be just constant rehearsal and rehearsal and rehearsal to get to get it down to where you believe she knows what she's doing with the switchboard and just how tight the dialogue is is kind of overlapping and that, as you said, that, that 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 thrill of discovery as she keeps you know pressing after to figure out what is this sound, um, and it, it, the whole film is like this, but this scene in particular kind of exemplifies that just completely arresting a nature of this mystery and the thrill of discovery. Yeah, uh, I'm sure we're going to end up talking about this movie later on, but but yeah, if there's if there's another scene that really encapsulates what I was talking about, it is this one where it is. It starts off like very innocuous, but then lines go dead, noises happen, this and this before, like all within a single take, like you are so much more on the edge of your seat by the end of this one little moment. It's, uh, it's so cool. So my last movie that I have some, some scenes from is, uh, Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. This is a super weird movie, uh, and it took me a bit before I really figured out what I thought about it. But I think when all of the, the crazy, weird cinephiles who watch movies like this for a living are all flummoxed by a movie, you know, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, this is it's it's bonkers. And I think Kaufman probably needs some help. <laughs> Somebody needs to check on this poor man. Um, but there is just something the i i feel so morbidly curious with every frame of this film every time something's going on it's just it's craziness and i'll talk about it later it'll show up again for me um but just some scenes that i wanted to highlight there's a there's the first dinner scene uh that the the two characters have with with uh Jesse Plemons plays the boyfriend forgetting the the lead actress, she's fantastic. She's about to be... Jesse Buckley? Yes, Jesse Buckley. She's fantastic in this. The first act of the movie is just about... It, like, it's just a car ride. And so it's just getting to Jesse Plemons' house to meet... Or his parents' house for this dinner that they're going to have. And the way that scene plays out is... It's just an incredible... Add it to the list of canon, like, uncomfortable dinner scenes in movies... Good old uh oh he plays Lupin. Why am I David Thewlis? David Thewlis plays his father and uh Tony Collette plays his mother and they're both just this weird it's the uncomfortable kind of quirky where you don't really know how to react to what they say and you don't know how they like you don't even really know how they intended things to come across and it's it's all sorts of awkward, uh, but it's it's excellently performed. The dinner scene is a real highlight, and then it won't take me like I'll I'll try to be brief with these with these other two, especially since I don't want to get too it take too long to get into them itself. But after that, the the movie cinematically portrays the passage of time in a really cool, but also a very depressing way, and the way the characters experience it is really cinematically compelling and really sad uh and then lastly all there's an interpretive dance scene at the end and it's weird and wild but kind of awesome my favorite (laughs) so uh my next two are from the movie emma uh the first one uh, there are so many delightful scenes but the first one is uh i mean i'm gonna spoil it but it's emma everyone knows the story of emma uh it's mr knightley's proposal 
And, you know, it starts as the very stiff, uncomfortable, you know, very, very British BBC scene. And then it just gets kind of wacky. Like, the, the whole film is a very kind of quirky, wacky tone. It's always playing with the norms and little little breaks in, in protocol that kind of give it personality. But just there's a there's a like she she um it's just it like several different subplots come to a head in this moment and uh emma just starts kind of melting down and freaking out because her plans are crumbling down and and uh and uh nightly is just kind of flummoxed by it all it's just the, the interplay anya taylor joy is just wonderful and it, like it's just the way the scene ends is like it's it a lot of a lot of subplots are kind of paying off and it's 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 like hilarious and satisfying and adorable and it's really funny um then the next one is uh is uh harriet telling emma that she's gonna marry mr martin if you've never seen emma well just you're gonna be lost <laughs> but it's kind of a, a, a moment where this poor girl that emma has been just playing with her life the entire film you know, finally grows a bit of backbone and stands up to her friend and is able to just, you know, for once in her life, not be, not allow Emma to dominate her, to, to make a choice and stand by and stand up to her. And it's, it's really satisfying after all the two characters <laughs> have been through. And it, it just kind of showcases the growth that both characters have been through. And then she goes off and with, with, you know, with, with her new boyfriend and they're just freaking adorable together. Man, I loved Harriet so much in that movie. Uh, just yeah. just a delight. We're moving to our, our most disappointing films, you know, movies that we were really looking forward to. It doesn't have to be terrible movies, but just something we were really looking forward to that just didn't deliver. It could still be a good movie, but anything there, James? Yeah, so so I have one that makes sense. It's uh, Wonder Woman 84. Again, I, I never had too high hopes for this. But I mean, I guess I already went into the reasons for for why it's here. Even, even as some like as somebody who wasn't over the moon, but but really enjoyed the first one. You know, it it fell. I think uh, you know quite a bit short from even that one. Yeah, that's all mine as well. Like I, I was the same place. Yeah, like, I I like Wonder Woman a lot, but I don't love it as much as most people. So I wasn't looking forward to this one as much. The trailers weren't great, but even then, I did not. I never in my wildest dreams did I expect it to be this kind of mediocre. Yeah. Artemis Fowl, I already talked about that. Other was a Call of the Wild. And I was kind of looking, I was really looking forward to this just because of the pedigree of people involved. Uh, it's Chris Sanders, one of the directors of Lilo and Stitch and How to Train Your Dragon. Um, shot by Janusz Kaminski, Steven Spielberg, cinematographer. Starring, it's starring Harrison Ford. And, I, and I'm pretty sure it's his first, like, primary star leading role since Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Like he's had large roles, like but like in, in the Star Wars films, but you know he's still you know lower than like Daisy Ridley or John Boyega. But here, like it's it's been so long since we've had him, you know, in a leading role like this. Um, I like the story. John Powell does the music, like, and then you know the trailers came out, and there was the CGI dog that everyone was talking about, and that's not great. But that's not even my biggest problem with the film. Like I can overlook that if if everything around it is great, but the big disappointment was just how childish the movie was. If you've read Jack London, you know that there's a very there's a very dark streak under all of them. They're very much about just how cruel and un, you know cruel nature is, and there most of them, a lot of them are man versus nature stories. So there's a a real grim brutality to it, and you know just tr- like clawing for life as the as the world tries to kill you. 
and it's it's really softened down like the brutality of both man and nature is is kind of cartoonish the way it's portrayed here so it was just disappointing it, it, it was trying to reach for some of the mythic ideas that london puts into his books but i think it, it but it undermined that the the, the, the mythic notion of you know the, this pampered house pet becoming a wolf answering the call of the wild it it really undermined that by just by being kind of a cartoon and i really wish they just committed to it and made it like a a, a tintin-esque uh motion capture film i think you know that the more cartoonish elements would have fit better and i think it actually might have been pretty good if they had done that but they they, they put it in live action so it's just, it's just the tones felt so incongruous and it never was able to really capitalize on you know the grand mythic darkness that is jack london yeah i saw that dog face and i was out <laughs> uh the next one is uh spencer confidential <sighs> what what happened to peter berg he, like he was on a really good string he had lone survivor which i really enjoyed Deepwater horizon which i i think is a truly fantastic um and then patriot's day which i think is also very good and then maybe about mile 22 which is terrible and spencer confidential i was really hoping he would redeem himself for mile 22 and it's just the most average limp lifeless movie um i don't know what happened it's just not it, it's not it's not terrible it's just kind of a nothing of a movie and it should should be really funny it's a it's like ostensibly a quirky private eye kind of there's, there's a, lot, a lot of comedy to it um, like it feels, it feels like like a kind of like a Shane Black, uh, Nice Guys or uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang type film. It's trying to be that, but it just isn't clever or fun enough to be that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on with him. I I hope, you know, I hope he and Wahlberg can find their stride again because they they were doing some really good work. I think you know earlier on in the 2010s, this was not that unfortunately. Mm, you hate to see it. All right, so moving on. Uh, to our favorite musical scores of 2020, James, what are some of yours? Uh, so I I really liked uh, the score for Emma. Actually, yes, uh, I found myself like humming the the like the main theme with the the strings. It it really got stuck in my head, uh, and like there's just <clears throat> there's just an overall sound to it, like this very light, fluffy, fun like exuberant sound to it. <laughs> the words I had written down were rich and bubbly. Yeah, exactly. Like that's, that's what it feels like. It's, and it like, it matches the tone because you, you were alluding to just the way the movie feels like to me, what it feels like is it's like, it, it's looking at a direct adaptation of, of like Austin. And then all of the little, like all of the quirks that are present in her work, everything gets dialed up one notch. Like it, it goes, it just goes up to eleven for each. Like every all the eccentricities, the style, like it's all. And then Bill Nighy is about three notches. <laughs> yes, uh, you know he he had to be the star, um, but to me, like the the mute the score matches that. Like it's it in a lot of ways it feels period appropriate, but there's these there's just all of these different things about it that feels a little bit like it's it's got a little bit more pep in it a little bit more something in it that separates it from just a direct like what you would associate with a a very straightforward adaptation uh so i i really found myself liking the score more than i thought i would 
Yeah, I didn't realize how much I loved this music until I like I was like I was trying to catch up on some scores. Like I like that movie, so I listened to the score, and then I listened to it. Like I I really freaking love this music. Um, is a lot like like period accurate instrumentals. Like the orchestrations feel pretty small and pared down. A lot of strings, flutes, some harpsichords, which I I is a, a instrument I'm always excited to find. Uh, in movies thank you dr strange <laughs> but it's, it's it's very playful so much of the movie is just about like little quirks and looks little kind of faux pas you know and things and the the the, the score is always is kind of playing underneath and it, it playing to each little joke and each little movement and bit of choreography and stage and comedy um but also the use of of actual of, of a songs um there's like acapella congregational hymns and folk songs it's just it's really really fun to listen to so another score that really stood out to me uh and this guy is like on a roll uh it's ludwig Göransson's score for tenet this is a wild score to me like i feel like it feels like a spiritual successor to a lot of zimmer's work for nolan before but there's there are these kind of like not techno, I don't know what the right term, but like there's an electronic, electronic yeah, an electronic sound to it that, that Gorenson brings that feels very unique among the scores for Nolan's films. Uh, but it it still it still kind of brings with it that kind of mechanical sound that Zimmer provided him so often where you, you almost feel like you're inside a massive clock as well. So that like that that feeling's never lost. And there's Whenever the the score goes big and bold and it and massive, uh, it's it it can be pretty flooring. Uh, so I I think it's a a pretty fantastic follow up to all of the amazing work Zimmer's done for him. Yeah, when Gordonson gets like this, it's it's music that is enthralling in the moment, and there's the sequences like like the opera scene where it's just the music is just blaring as propelling the film forward there's moments where the score kind of you could hear music being played backwards through it um it's it's like really incredible in the moment but i really never want to listen to it again (laughs) it's like it's not like it's it's almost like sometimes it's not even like music it's just like notes and tones and sounds it works for the film but it's not terribly pleasant listening to outside of it for me at least man whenever i whenever i if I can get on the interstate, I'll I'll throw that one on and start driving <laughs> fast to it, or just on a run or something. There, yeah, like it's it's definitely so much of it just goes on without any real, at least for me, discernible melody. But it's the the sounds and noises and things that he is doing, like when it comes together, it is it's so interesting. Like just the sounds are so interesting to me that there are moments where I'm like I do kind of just want to sit down and like crank up my my speakers and let let that wash over me my next one is uh the artemis fowl sound score by patrick doyle didn't much like the film i really enjoyed the music patrick doyle is a very reliable composer he makes very fun big boisterous music and this is no exception um i am a sucker for celtic music just if you want to make me happy just put some celtic influences into your music and uh, there's a, is a kind of a, a mix between some Celtic influences, but also a, a much more modern sound with like some electronic stuff. So it's a it's a very fun, not an amazing score, but just a very very fun, bouncy listen. So for my last one, uh, I actually went with the Vast of Night. Uh, 
it's not a huge comprehensive score, but I feel like it has a super unique identity in its sound. Uh, and it's it's not something I noticed until the the scene that I actually picked with the the long oneer. Whenever that that shot first takes off and it, and we leave the switchboard studio out onto the streets, you hear this slow progressive like drum beat sound. Like it's just these loud bangs, and it progresses the further we go on down the street. But then these weird like more traditional violin notes. Come into play, and then these other non-traditional sound. Like it's, it the main theme almost feels like it's like three different separate themes, very simple themes, but just all taking turns for their little bit. Like it's just this back and forth of all these different interesting sounds, and it really kind of it it mimics a lot of what I love about the movie itself, which is like it's it's this little thing, and then this next thing, and then this next thing, and like when it, it all works together to create this kind of eerie but not like creepy just like this eerie sense of of wonder uh as the can and it works super well with the shot of just wandering the streets in the town and stuff so uh you know like it it that theme and it's they've got a couple other sounds and themes that they'll use at different points and i, I think it all it's all really good there's you could probably distill it all down to really like 15 20 minutes of just like original music without too much repetition um but i i it's all just really cool and is working super well with the tone and feel of the movie yeah kind of another one of those those uh scores that really effective in context but not the type of music that i want to listen to outside of it but kind of building off that uh were there any standout uh needle drops uh for you out of the films this year uh yes it's so the one that i that really got me is in the scene i already brought up it's shimmy shimmy yeah from the gentleman (laughs) uh i've already gone into i love that but man the way that 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 scene just put puts you in its headspace this vibe and like in the theater i feel like i was like physically really getting into it and yeah pretty pretty great moment um, so the big one for me is the uh, Cumberland Gap uh, by David Rawlings in also in The Gentleman. It's the song that plays over the opening credits. And uh, speaking of you know, moments where you know you're going to love the movie, as this was playing over like the, the hazy, smoky kind of liquid credits. Um, it's a really great song. I've been listening to it kind of nonstop all throughout the year. Then a couple more were from Emma. Uh, the Game of Cards by uh, Mandy Pryor and uh, June Tabor. I think their their group is called the Silly Sisters. Um, it's a it's a just kind of a British folk song that plays over this after the scene I mentioned um, where Harriet tells uh, Emma she's going to marry Mister Martin. As as they kind of they go and kiss and they're running off in the meadow and the the song starts playing and everything is being set to right as kind of the film is go- heading in towards conclusion. It's just delightful. Another one is a congregational acapella uh, singing of uh, How Firm a Foundation, oh, the hymn. That is one of mine. That was yeah. wild hearing that in a movie. Yeah, that was really good. Um, so we are, that that was the last of our kind of fun categories. Or at least I hope they were fun. And if anyone's still listening. Everybody hated them, Gabe. Probably. I think since we've so, seen so few films this year, uh, we're we're not gonna even do honorable mentions. Uh, I'm say, gonna some start... of my picks. They're lucky even getting in. 
Yeah, I'm going to start on my top 10, and I'm just going to go until I come to a number that James has uh, begun his ranking yet. What does your ranking start for your favorite films of the year? Uh, okay, so here's the thing. A lot of the time, like, I, I went real, with really long time in between some of these viewings, and so I, I actually don't feel like I have any order locked down. James, but, we have to do numbers. It's the oh, law. It's okay, the you know it's what? Fine. There'll be numbers. This is what binds society together, James. Rankings <laughs> it's true. and lists I, and numbers. My brain works with lists. I adore lists. But you I can't need to break the system. I, okay, well, I'll just do it. Okay, there's there's a, it'll be a list, but it'll be a list ordered entirely arbitrarily. Okay, but, but where does it come in? How many numbers are there? How many, okay, how many uh, films? I'll say... <laughs> I'll say six. I I, okay. I feel like I truly, really, really enjoy six of these without also having to like give caveats for things that I don't like. And actually, out so, of nine films, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's also because I a lot of these were just uh, oh I take it back seven. Well, yay! I've seen more than I thought. Well, I'll start at number ten for me. Uh, number ten, Bad Boys for Life. Um, wasn't expecting much. But I ended up having a really good time with it. It's very fun. It's not a high bar, but it is my favorite of the three. Uh, they, they kind of they got rid of a lot of just the Michael Bay stupidity. I, I still like Michael Bay, but he's you know he's not a terribly disciplined filmmaker. This is much more pared down, much more focused on character. Got rid of lot, some of the more nasty, just nastiness that Michael Bay inserts into his films. Uh, just a fun, heartfelt action movie. Number nine is uh. I don't know how to pronounce this. The, the uh, Iraqi city, uh, like Mosul, I think. Mosul? Is that, do, do you know how it's Mosul? pronounced? Oh, yeah, I, 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 I think I've heard it different ways, but I think okay. it's all from people who don't with, know Mo, how to pronounce it. I'll go with Mosul. Um, this is it's one of uh, the Agbo films from the, the studio that uh, the Russo brothers put together after they after their spell in the MCU. Um, it's it's a, written and directed by Matthew Michael Carnahan, who's uh, Joe Carnahan's uh, brother. And it's about this Iraqi SWAT team fighting uh, ISIS in the absolutely devastated war zone of Mosul. And they're kind of behind enemy lines, just driving around in trucks and getting into random skirmishes with um, ISIS forces. And it's it's shot with an entirely Iraqi, or not entirely Iraqi, but entirely Middle Eastern cast. And... um, all, all the dialogue is in uh, a local Iraqi dialect, and so it's all subtitles. No Western, no Western up characters, and it's just a really interesting look at a war film from that perspective. We've seen a lot of Middle Eastern war films, but it's entirely from that perspective, and just like. So like America is ostensibly their allies, but they you know they obviously have a very complicated view of Americans and you know the various different Iraqi factions like. You have like army and like just different government factions. Also, you have the, the obviously ISIS and just kind of the exploration of this conflict from a very boots on the ground Iraqi soldiers perspective was really fascinating. Like, it's not the greatest movie. Like, this the plot is just okay. You know, the characters overall, the characters don't leave a huge impression except one. Um, and I apologize if I forgot to pronounce his, mispronounce his name, uh, Suhail Dabak. Um, he plays like the captain of the SWAT team and he just has this incredible presence. He's like a father to all these guys. Have you seen Das Boot? 
I have not yet. The, 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 the performance that most reminds me of is the captain in that, where he just has these like really deep soulful eyes. And like, he, he he's just, you feel this kind of weight and authority about him. I thought he was really incredible. So yeah, really interesting film. Uh, eight, number eight was uh, the invisible man. I like this film a lot. I didn't, I didn't love it as much as everyone else seemed to love it, but it's really good. Um, Lee Wanell again, just showing that he's just a very, you know, a really great technical filmmaker. Just these, he, these virtuoso sequences, be they action in upgrade or here, some crazy sequences of suspense. Um, excellent performance from Elizabeth Moss and just some of the creepiest stuff you'll ever see. Uh, number seven for me is Pixar's Onward. And I'm, I'm kind of getting a feel for Dan Scanlon movies where they start off, they're they're unre- they're a good but unremarkable. Like, okay, I get what this is. I'm not terribly excited for it. And then they just slowly get better and better and better as they go. And then they have like this virtuoso <laughs> uh, finale that's like incredible and blows you away. Uh, this is kind of the case for, for, the, uh, for Monsters University um, his previous film, and then for on, like it starts, it's okay. The fancy, the fancy aspect, I don't think is terribly well integrated, but you know the characters are likable. It's a fun quest, and then it, you know it slowly builds the the chemistry between the characters, the 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 element with the the father who's just a pair of legs walking around, just lots of funny hijinks, and then it gets to a, a climax where just the emotions, you know, the, the arcs and emotions start to pay off, and it just packs a wallop. And similarly, with uh, as with uh, Monsters University, it, it 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 the whole film up till then has been very just generic. You know, we've kind of the, the the no surprises. You you know what to expect, and then it takes a really sharp left turn into to, and and uh, to offer a very a kind of a unique uh, ending, but that that is very emotionally satisfying. So like, it's 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 funny that this almost exact same pattern happened in both of Scanlon's films, but uh, yeah. Okay. Good to okay for most of the film, but that just like blows you away in the ending. All right. So now, uh, so I've caught up with James. Uh, so what is your number six, James? All right. So my number six, I am going to say is the vast of night. Uh, I, like I said, I already, I, I really enjoyed this. I'll just take a little bit longer to, to elaborate on, on why. Uh, so number six for me is the vast of night. Uh, yeah, this this movie just it has a feel and and a vibe that I I really love from this opening of it's this fantastic tracking shot of a guy walking through setting up who he is, like it sets up who he is by how people talk to him how he interacts with people how he interacts with his co lead. If Tony Stark were a you know a Midwest high school radio uh, you know disc jockey, yeah. Uh, that's who this character is. <laughs> There's and it's just like his cockiness is like really <laughs> endearing. Like it, it just feels like he's he's presenting himself as all that. And in the so the movie just it creates these. I, I find both him and uh, and the the switchboard operator like they're both just incredibly endearing. Their dynamic is such a joy to watch, and the sense of discovery as the movie goes on. This intrigue that. Like it's it's able to take like a set like make a sound, just send shivers down your spine, or the fact that someone's like, oh, I know what that is, let me tell you about it. All of a sudden, like I, we've got no effects, we've got basically nothing in front of us except for like 
a room and two actors in it and they're talking back and forth and I'm just like on the edge of my seat being like what where is this going what's going on it's it's just such a cool vibe and it has it's such a, a fun creepy but cool atmosphere and I don't know I I really ended up loving it that is also my number six um I I am not I'm someone who has absolutely zero interest in aliens um, and for that reason, like films like E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they don't do a lot for me because I feel like so much of so much of those films is predicated on a fat, you know, a deep fascination with the unknown. You know, what is out there? Mysteries of the universe. And I just I maybe just my worldview is so secure that I just don't care. I don't have those questions. Um, but for this film, I feel like it was the first time a movie made me like just feel to my core that sense of wonder the thrill of discovery of like you know the 50s you with the ufos and like questions like we are hearing a sound where is it coming from what is this thing and just that desperate need to know the truth so like you talked about where a caller would call and say like i know what that is and we'll have like 15 minutes of them telling a story and you're just listening with bated breath because i have to figure out what this is that's what like that feeling is what this film is. As you, as you said, you know, the two young performances are fantastic. The the cinematography just is it's clearly done with no money, but at every point he shoot, he just shoots it in a unique way that overcomes it. It reminded me a lot of like a Shyamalan film, mm. uh, just that the sense of minimalism where Shyamalan yeah. will just allow a will allow scenes to play out with a single take where it's all just the actors and the atmosphere and the creepy tone is a lot like that. Um, yeah. I got a lot of signs vibes, just yeah, like, signs unbreakable, yeah. like just the t- tone wise um, he, that, and he's just, he's able to capture the identity of a location in a similar way. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, the, the small town we see, um, there's just so much character and personality. Like the plot is is so simple. The the final resolution is is good, but not amazing. But the experience of this film is just like how much he gets out of absolutely nothing. Um, just as an exercise in film craft and technique, it's it's just mind blowing. So number five, James. So number five for me is Emma. Uh, I like I said, I really enjoyed just like every bit of the two hours I spent sitting in front of this play. Like it, the, the performances I think are fantastic. Anya Taylor joy is, it's just fun to watch her. Like all of the different quirks she has, the, the different, like she's got such an expressive face and the way she's able to like deliver a joke just with a look or her body language is like the, just the great moment from the trailer, like the way she kind of pushes open the carriage window. It's <laughs> there's so much packed into everything she decides to do. Uh, and, and I also I really like Johnny Flynn a lot as Nightly. Like he's he feels like a a solid like dynamic for her. Um, uh, okay. Apparently, everyone in the world not only knew who Johnny Flynn was, but had strong opinions on Johnny Flynn before they saw this movie. I did not. <laughs> yeah, um, I, this is my, this is me discovering who this man is. Okay. 
based on the one thing that I know of him in it, which is this, I really like him. Like, I, I feel like he's, he's able to deliver this style of dialogue super effectively. Like he doesn't, it, it, it's not like, so, sometimes you'll have performers who I feel like are almost fixated on the, the words themselves and the way these sentences are structured, that some of the, the emotion gets lost because of how foreign this way of talking feels, but he's, he's able and really this whole cast is able to get through this dialogue in a way that feels like it's like modern emotions and sensibilities through the dialogue and i, I think he's really able to excel at that as well um yeah I, I love the color palette of it it's such a bright fun looking movie it's just it's a it's a fun movie to exist in and I, i'm really glad that like so you really loved it and my sister loved it and bought it and that's why I ended up watching it and I, I'm glad that it it has these vocal uh, apologists to to try to put it in front of more people. Uh, that will show up later on my list. Uh, my number five is Soul. Um, so bear in mind I've only seen this once and usually I have to watch Pixar films a couple times to really you know to really get them and really solidify my feelings on them. I am an enormous fan of Pete Doctor. Uh, Up is my favorite Pixar film. I think Inside Out is like my number five Pixar film. I, I and Monsters Inc is probably like number six. Um, I just adore the man and the way he makes films. And there is so much of that in this film. It, now, mind you, I've only seen it once, and I, I didn't love. I didn't, you know, I didn't adore Up the same way I do now when I first saw it. I didn't adore Inside Out the first time, the way I do the first time I saw it. But there's a. It feels just a little lacky like everything great is there you know the, the core theme is is you know beautiful and profound the the animation is amazing um just the the jokes they all land the the, the pure creativity and ideas of what is happening the way the most abstract concepts are visualized and personified all of that is amazing I, i'd say up to the level of what the way it was done inside out but i feel like it's missing a pl- either like a plot line maybe a character an extra character arc or maybe like a, a small series of setups and payoff like it just it feels like it just kind of ended rather abruptly and like the character arcs are satisfying but it just i don't know it, it just felt like it was missing just one thing to take it from a really good movie to the kind of masterpieces that that you know that that are in the you know the top 10 of Pixar's i like it a lot but just just there, there, there felt like this, there was something lacking about it in the end, in the way it ended. I, I don't know. I'd have to watch it again to really solidify my thoughts on what that element was. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt. So this this didn't end up making my top six, these these movies that I, I really like without too much of a hangup. And it, it, it's weird. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, like you, I need to give it a rewatch. And my first viewing may even have been comparable. Like I watched it in a big group, uh, and there wasn't a, like a lot of talking, but like, you know nieces and nephews and stuff. And so, I kind of want to give it another. Well, I mean, since it's Pixar and Pete Doctor, I will, without question, give it an, another viewing. But I really liked it, and I'm having the same trouble putting my finger exactly on it because I have a few issues with it that I could vocalize, but they're spoilers. Like I, there, there's. There's a certain direction that I feel like was set up that they didn't go through with. Uh, YouTube YouTuber uh, Jenny Nicholson. I saw something she was posting on Twitter, and it like it was 
exactly what I was feeling where it, like it feels like they were thinking about making like going this way with him and then decided on doing something else at the very end and kind of forgot to go and clean up some earlier stuff that hints at this. Like I said, I won't get into like I, I felt like they were they were about to say something with this character and about well, I'll just avoid it. Um and it doesn't feel like to me it's like, oh, this is what I would have done. It feels like, oh, the movie's going in this direction and they didn't follow through with this. And uh I would have changed the final moments a bit. But even even outside of those, I do think that there's just some like the the ideas are all there, but they feel like they're not, no one location feels explored long enough. Like the central ideas don't feel as deeply played out as something like Inside Out or or Monsters, Inc., where like that is just so in- integral to the to the film's idea. And I, I think for me also, I was kind of surprised. It, it The jokes didn't land entirely for me the way that I'm used to with pictures. Like I... I rewatched Monsters Inc. Uh, last year, and I mean it's as funny as ever. Like it's hilarious, and and I think Inside Out is hilarious, and and this is definitely funny, but I don't think that uh, Faye or like Fox, I don't I don't think their dynamic is top tier uh, Pixar. I think it, so much of this just feels unfair because I. If this were a DreamWorks film, I don't know how much of this I would be saying, you know, mm-hmm. but because it's following in the footsteps of these other films, it it feels like my mind is scrutinizing it, maybe to an unfair degree. But but I, I really liked it, but it did things, it, it made a couple decisions that I wasn't fully on board with, and it was overall lacking this, a sense of of wonder and discovery that that I felt the first time visiting these other worlds that were created. Hmm. Um, but back to the positives, I think I think Jamie Foxx as the main character Joe is really really good. Also, the lighting, just like this film deserves to be on this list for the lighting on Earth, like the scenes on Earth alone, it's the beautiful golden hues of the sunlight. I'm pretty sure like there's an actual film grain put into it. Um, just the 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 depth and richness of the colors of like the clothing and the streets. It's like animation is no is you know it's always they always have bright colors but th- this had like a level of depth and just realism it was still very rich and colorful but a richness to it that just an- most animated films don't even touch just because the colors are usually just kind of neon surface level popping um there's just a, a the visual aesthetic to this film was just incredible and <laughs> graham norton's character is just a, a delight i thought and uh, you're number four james so my number four is the gentleman. Uh, you know, we've we've already touched on a lot of things we like about this, just through the the scenes and the tracks and stuff. Uh, but let's talk about the the movie in a in a broader way. Uh, there's just Guy Ritchie creates such a cool, fun vibe, and it's almost there's almost a sense like the more I watch his movies. There's a, there's this feel of like participation with it. Like you almost feel like you get to live vicariously through some of the characters where it's and I think a part of that is because it is his movies so often have like big ensembles that like are a part of just and I like this bigger identity together. And so when you've got the concepts of like these different gangs and these like 
different territories and stuff. It just it feels like you are taking some sort of participatory step into this movie's feel where you're you're just hanging out with these different characters going on little missions with them and and being like having that feel and hearing uh hearing Richie's dialogue go back and forth between these fantastic actors and and watching the way these different events play out in just really fun clever ways it's such a it's I don't know, it's just such a fun <laughs> The hilarious time there are a couple moments in this that just like it was like grabbing my side because i'm laughing that hard like there's a there's a specific moment where uh hugh grant shouts an expletive (laughs) it's just it's hot it killed the entire theater it was one of the funniest things ever to me and and in addition to this kind of like almost just like it's so funny. The movie has such incredible, hilarious dialogue, but like maybe the two standout moments are the parts where like it's just his delivery and the single word he says, or like this short sentence he says. Uh, and then the other moment is just, it's, it's a look that Colin Farrell gives like our characters look at him and <laughs> he makes it's It's so ridiculous and over the top and funny and fun and more like morbid and weird and ridiculous but it's i don't know guy Ritchie brings it all together in a way that really works i i just i really had fun with this movie that's gonna show up later uh my number four is tenet um it's a really good movie it, it, it has problems and people have been talking long <laughs> loud about various problems the sound mixing is terrible uh at least as far as the the volume of the dialogue. The rest of the sound of the movie is pretty incredible, but the dialogue is not giving the attention it should be. That's true. I don't find the plot overly complex. Like it is it's complex, but in the way that I love from Nolan, like similar to Inception to where when you watch some directors films and they're really complex and you, and it's just overly complicated and you can't follow it. It's frustrating because you, you know, for many filmmakers, I don't have the confidence that they actually know what they're doing and that the, and the, the, the questions I have are going to be answered. But when you're watching a Nolan film, you, you could, you tell, you know, you're in the hands of a master. And even if I don't understand something now, either it's going to become clear when it's over, or if I go back and think about it and look at it, I will find the answer somewhere in the film. Like he, you know, he has thought about this. He has worked it out. So like you, you, you like, even if you're confused, you can have faith you know, that, that it will all make sense when watching his movie. So, like, the complexity on that front didn't bother me. But, but And I do agree with the critique that it is probably his least emotional film. I, I, I've never fully agreed with the, uh, the notion that his films are cold. Like, I find Inception very emotional, Interstellar, obviously. Even Dunkirk. Like, Dunkirk made me cry. Like, I, I, I weep. Um, but this one, I do agree finally that... It, there are there's a, there are powerful character moments, but it's not deeply integrated into the film. It's kind of like, oh, that character had a really satisfying conclusion, but it's not like the whole film was building to a narrative, uh, you know, emotional climax like it does in say Inception. Um, so that 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 does hold it back. It's probably mid tier ten, uh, a mid tier Nolan for me overall. But what this film does have is just bonkers nolan scale and bombast also john david washington and robert pattinson being amazing uh john david washington he's a guy who like kind of i mean he's as a washington son so he didn't exactly come out of nowhere but 
like he just kind of it felt like he just kind of showed up in Black Klansman and blew everyone away. And he's I think he's even better here. He's he's just this incredible, suave, charismatic presence. Um, a character that doesn't even have a name has very little, you know, there's very little drama thrown his way, but he just strides through all the chaos with, with and it's, it's just, he's so charismatic and fun to watch. Um, just a perfect action star, in my opinion. Uh, Robert Pattinson, you know, I've, yeah, I, I, another movie who, uh, so an actor who I also started warming up to in Lost City of Z. Uh, he's, he's phenomenal. Just very relaxed and chill and just kind of, he's kind of the guide for, for, uh, Washington's character. And he's a lot of fun. Um, obviously Branon, DeBecky, I've already mentioned them. So it's, it's a, it's a really, um, it's just, it's, it's a lot of classic Nolan, incredible action sequences. The, the, the time inversion, it still breaks my mind whenever I try to think about how they film some of these scenes, but it, it's so, it's so just awe inspiring to watch how it plays out the way, the way he shoots for scale. No one, like no one can do it like him. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's more just amazing Christopher Nolan magic, not as perfect as some of his other films, but still really good. So this is one that ended up missing out my list and I, I almost feel like I I need another viewing to really even feel comfortable like in like conversationally bringing up my thoughts on it. I, I was super high on it whenever I first left. It's like just the thrill of it was so enrapturing. Like it was just so hard to forget some of these moments. But then as as the week went on, I I realized like outside of Outside of the thrill of the set pieces and these phenomenal sequences, I didn't have much to grasp. And I want to rewatch it now that I'm more familiar with the the plot points and and how the how the film turns out. Um, like you, I've I've never found him particularly cold. Uh, I get very emotional in Inception. Like whenever the track time is playing in the third act, like I'm feeling it. It Interstellar makes me cry. I cry in like the Dark Knight trilogy. I, the the warmth and humanity between Bruce and Alfred, and like I, I've always found him to be somebody who I who is able to emotionally affect me. But but like you, this is one where I I did feel mostly emotionally absent. Um, and and I think part of the problem was you know there is very little real drama that are that the the protagonist actually has to deal with. I I also think that the based on a single viewing, the movie feels like it's kind of flying by the seat of its pants in a way that I'll have to watch again to know how I feel about it. Like it feels like we're just kind of stumbling on to new people to talk to to give us information. And, and by the time we're, it's very Bond. It's very James Bond in that regard. Like he saw this is kind of his Bond movie. So it does have that. We're like, now we're here, and now we're here, and oh, this look at this person, and we're gonna talk to him, and now we're gonna do this action sequence. Like it, it is, it, it very much follows the classic, uh, Bond plot formula kind of thing, where it's just kind of it's it's globe trotting, but it doesn't always make the most sense. It's doing it because it's it's it looks cool and fun. Yeah, and that's that's elements of Bond that like it to me that works in like the classic dumb Bonds because they're like despite what some may some people may think who you know defend some of those movies as fantastic, uh, 
I think especially the early ones, they are fun because they're dumb. And that's not exact, like, that's not a vibe that I think works with this film. And so it really does feel like, like, there's all this secrecy about everything, but like, go say this word to this person. This person, he talks to him, is like, okay, well, now this thing, and now this thing. And like, we we get all, I, I mentioned the, the scene that I adore, like this third act, but like, we're in the briefing before all of this goes down, and I'm confused why we're here. Like, who, how did we... Really, how did we find our, ourselves in this scenario? Who Who is technically... Well, I, I, th I think a lot of the plotting will be cleared up in multiple viewings. Like... It could be, but I don't know. It just on, an, on initial viewing, it, it really... I don't know. It felt kind of slapped together. Like he took individual sequences, put them all on the table, and then slapped them together without a whole lot of coherence in terms of like why we're here and why we're now doing this and doing this and doing this. Um, and I, I think I almost put this on most disappointing, uh, I, but to, like that carries such a negative connotation that I don't want to like attach this movie to. But the reason that I was tempted is because for me, it is like, it is lower tier Nolan. Like, I, I think I have a couple films of his below it and that's it. And I'm not even sure about that, which is again, like, I mean, trying to really place it without subsequent viewings is futile but anyways yeah i like i i love the actual direction and the action and everything he's able to accomplish as this practical action filmmaker um but as a as a film it it, it happens and i enjoy it and then i move on and and the best of nolan goes so far beyond that so my number three is The Invisible Man. Uh, this is actually the last film I was able to, to catch in the theaters before lockdown happened, uh, at least the last new release. Um, and I really loved it. I really love Lee Winnell. Uh, I think visually he is just such a unique voice. I loved him whenever he did Insidious Chapter 3 and like people just kind of pretended like it never had it's just received in such a with such shrugged shoulders but i i there was no, there was a third insidious movie oh there's four now i heard the oh, fourth wow. one is true crap but he did the third one and it's a prequel and i really loved it he's he he's not quite one but he's able to he, he understands tension and he understands how to build he, it's it's smart horror and and I really loved Upgrade. Um, it's in the, like he just has such a cool atmosphere and aesthetic to it. And so I was really excited going in here. And I actually liked it more than I thought that I would. Uh, it delivered on a lot of the horror aspects in ways that I did not at all anticipate. And it like its big jump scare like shook me out of my seat. <laughs> and there like there several sequences where even though i'm not like screaming i'm just like i'm clenching my fists and i'm inching my way back to my seat and i'm just it's such a cool feeling and so i, I think mm -hmm. the, the, the there was one scene that almost made it to my uh my favorites but it, it didn't add it because it was more a moment than a scene i'm not going to spoil it but just paint <laughs> that yep that's moment. that's the jump scare that scene oh my gosh <laughs> It it just 
freaked me out. I think I may have audibly shouted. Um, I, I There was another scene that I almost added, and really I should have, so I'll just mention it while I'm already talking about the movie. But it, involving the way uh, it interacts with bed sheets, there's a scene that yeah. I just thought, is man, what an image. What, like, what an incredible... Well, there, there's several of those. Yeah, it's... And, and like the the experimentation he started with upgrade in in this kind of fixing the camera on a single point on this axis and moving it exclusively with that like there's this like basically a fight scene that's just bonkers it blows my mind watching it uh and so i i think there's just a lot of things working together to make this really memorable uh, I think his direction is fantastic. I think Elizabeth Moss gives, I don't know, maybe my favorite performance of the year. Like, uh, I am close to somebody who has experienced, like, nothing to this extent, but who has experienced a very unhealthy relationship and gaslighting. And seeing the way this film cinematically presents that, uh, I think, helped it even further because, I mean, it, it feels like the movie kind of taking reality and, and exaggerating it enough just to create this two hour thriller. But I, I think her performance is just absolutely phenomenal. There's a, a scene at a restaurant where like she's trying desperately to plead her case and it's, you feel like it's not an actress. This is just, this is somebody desperately trying to convince you they're not crazy. And she's just, incredible so i yeah i just i'm also looking really crazy which makes it <laughs> exactly all, all the more and, disturbing oh man it's i don't know i re- i really really love this movie i thought it was really great um so my number three is hamilton am i cheating <laughs> absolutely but <laughs> there's not that many movies this year um so this is the, this the film stage version of hamilton on disney plus it's hamilton uh <laughs> I really don't have much I can say about it that you obviously haven't heard many, many times over. The music is great. Uh, the one big thing I noticed was that it's like a two hour and 40 minute uh, st- you know, filmed stage musical and it just flew by. I, I was like kind of shocked at how it did not feel its length at all. Like I was already a major fan of this. I've been listening to the soundtrack over and over again for years before that. Uh, and I saw it and I loved it and it's Hamilton and it's great. <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't include this because I don't know, trying to figure out how, like where to slide it in. And I don't know. I, I kind of took the easy way out and said, well, it's not a film, so I don't have to worry about it. But I, I also watched that when this came out this, this year and I, I hadn't listened to it extensively, but I was very aware of a lot of the music um, and being able to watch this and hear everything in its right context. And, seeing all of these performances that you hear all the buzz about like this very much lived up to its expectation like or to the hype for me like i i was blown away by it I, just, the performances are phenomenal it's endlessly creative though like all of the different styles of music they have in it and it's also just it's such a fantastic character piece to me like it's it's this big loud you know vibrant musical with all of these great catchy songs and like at the core of it though it's the way it it handles the the titular character i just thought was absolutely brilliant and it had me weeping by the end of it and i did not at all expect that and one of the perks of seeing a film was i finally realized why everyone was so obsessed with david diggs like he's great in the soundtrack don't get me wrong but there's so many little (laughs) 
things and quirks he's doing that are entirely visual uh that was it was so hilarious to see for the you know, for the first time having only listened to it um so yeah now i am just as obsessed with him as everyone else <laughs> yeah and like the, the whole the the whole play is it's just made up of a series of superstars like these the <laughs> the level of talent that this play possesses almost makes me it's like you this is unfair these you've hogged up almost all of like i don't know it's incredible all right number two james Okay, so my number two is I'm thinking of ending things. Like I said, I had a... Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> I had a weird relationship with this at first. Although now that I think about it, I, I think my uh, confliction and confusion, at least towards my thoughts, kind of dissipated or, over the end of the night. That uh, was your humanity speaking. <laughs> and your then sanity. I lost all of that and then embraced it. No, I, it was one of those movies. So a, a film that... I should like, or sh- uh, that I should love, that I do like but should love, was The Lighthouse. That movie, to me, despite all of the things it does that I love, I've spent a long time talking with friends about it, reading articles about it, watching video essays about it, and it, ideas materialize and take shape, but they feel so intangible and so impersonal and so disparate with each other that I it doesn't amount to anything that I feel like warrants further thought than what I've put into it. Because it, it's it's like, the more you think, uh, if you think about something for like two hours and you talk about things for longer than that and you still don't feel like you're really getting at something meaningful, then it feels like uh, there, maybe there's nothing, there, there, or at least there's not something that special to get at here if I don't feel like I'm being rewarded for it. And I think what really won me over to this is when it ended, I had a couple of friends that I was talking to. We all watched it together. And we were all kind of like, wait, what is this? And what does this mean? And after like an hour of talking, it really felt like the pieces were falling together. And like everything that Kaufman was trying to say was fitting together in, in ways that made sense. And it almost felt like we were retro like without actually rewatching it it felt like we were retroactively watching it again like thinking back at the beginning and like so this is what he was saying with this character and this is all this and 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 it wasn't even just like putting together pieces of like plot information and lore together of like oh well this person was this thing and because of that then this and it's also like as those things fall into place his over like his his overall themes and ideas were falling into place with them in a way that that I did find rewarding. Like by the end of, of the the two hours that came after the two hour movie, I felt like I liked it even more. I also think he's just visually a very interesting director, and he does a lot of the, the movie has such a weird tone that just burrows inside your brain, and I don't know. It's it's pretty wild, but I, I ended up really loving it. Okay. <laughs> My number two is Emma. Uh, Pearl, I'm assuming the exact opposite of this film. Uh, but hey, I love them. Yeah, this movie is just a delight. I, I, I'm a big fan of Austin. Uh, like I watched the movie earlier in the year that I read, read the book and rewatched it. The thing that I mean, we've had innumerable Austin adaptations, but what uh, Autumn DeWilde brought to this is she just is like diving in very deep into all of the customs the the sense of propriety all just the weird little goofy quirks of british 
aristocracy. And everything in this movie is like played around that. It's like a comedy of manners in the most literal sense. Like I, I could call this movie like it's a meaningful glances. The film, there's so much <laughs> communication happening in just looks, a single line, um, the, so much of the comedy is just in the staging, the way people stand. And uh, the, what I loved about this one in particular is just how the set, everything is so stiff that the little moments that the, you know, that sense of proprietor, that sense of, you know, the, the, um, the, that, that, that stiff, a uh, British aristocracy, the moment that s- the people slip out of character and actually like, like show them, show their real emotions. It, it, it's so impactful just because of how ridiculous and trust out these people are. Like, the collars like go way up, like up to their ears. It's like everything is so exaggerated that the moments of genuine emotion that slip out, they, they hit that much harder, but also like the balance between comedy, because this is an absolutely ridiculous movie with cr- insane characters, but it's able to balance a genuine sense of drama. It, so much of the credit for that has to go, obviously, to the direction, but Anya Taylor-Joy, I have been obsessed with her ever since Split, and every single role I see her in since that has just made me more and more obsessed with her. I, th- I think she's going to be Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, you know, level by the time you know, she's that age. I think she's astonishing. The the, the balance of comedy and drama, and this this is a you know, very complicated and layered character and she goes through i think one of my favorite arcs just in fiction you know from this really like well-meaning but kind of narcissistic controlling character to you know through this series of incredibly devastating and humbling and just and humiliating circumstances to where she you know she has comes out with you know, a much more mature per- caring person it's just a joy to watch that's, johnny flynn is sorry that's something that I think really elevated this film that I was already really enjoying was, was the way they handle her character and her growth. I, w- I was surprised with, with the nuance I found there where like it's, they're never necessarily playing with one extreme with her. Like even whenever she's at her most indulgent and self-absorbed, it's not like to a complete cartoonish extent and the way that the film does find ways to humble her is in in a movie that does get you know very quirky and eccentric like it, the way the movie brings her back down and places her in the end in a very like you know in a very pleasant way like it ends her in a very pleasant place and it does that through super like these just really fantastic human moments and like these other moments that are also heightened and it's i don't i don't know it's it's such a I don't know. I, I love the character and every like everything the film does and getting her from point A to point B. And uh, Johnny Flynn is fantastic as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the whole cast is great. Uh, Bill Nighy as her father is. I love the man. Uh, yeah. So uh, number one, James, your number one of 2020. It's my number one. It, it's funny. This is the very first time I will even speak this name. Uh, but it is the devil all the time. Uh Again, so I I don't know what this list looks like after rewatches. Like I said, most of the time, I'll end up rewatching. Like what what ends up as my top ten by the time I form it, I'll have seen everything twice. But for now, uh, I'm putting this at my number one. I think it also got me in the right the right time because I was actually right in the middle of of binging uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, Flannery O'Connor's short stories. 
And this film slides right into that without skipping a beat. Like just this. I should have done a category of books we read. <laughs> do, yeah. Well, part of Harry Potter. Uh, but it, uh, it, it has like I the the I guess the the term that I don't know if she coined or was like described about her work or just a genre that she kind of falls into but like this idea of, of the gothic south um that is that is this movie like it's full of melodrama and and violence and brutality and but like faith and contemplations of bigger things and like it's it's very small boots to the ground but also like these bigger statements about humanity and and things and you know i've seen a lot of people criticize aspects of execution and maybe on rewatch some of that stuff would materialize for me but just for my initial viewing it it felt like watching a coen brothers film but <laughs> a little less a little less punishing, and even if not less punishing, it feels like it ends dis- just decidedly less nihilistic. And I adore the Coen Brothers, and even though I'm I'm not at all a nihilistic person, like nihilism is a it's a, an idea that I find cinematically very compelling. Um, but this this finds a way to hit a lot of the things they do. But where they where films like that kind of stop at and it meant nothing, I feel like this is able to expand beyond that and and make interesting statements. And I I really ended up loving the the final like two minutes of this and and the way it kind of like what it what it said to you by the end like this is why you waited here this is why we wanted to say these things this is it was it was a very I don't know. It's a very satisfying ending to me, and it has great performances. Like everybody in it, Riley Co is is it Riley Ka? Like, I, 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 Q, I think. Q. Okay, she she's Q. fantastic in it. Uh, Jason Clark is great. Obviously, uh, there, there are all of the memes um, surrounding Robert Pattinson. He's awesome in it. Uh, and then Wait, did I miss those? The all the the delusions. So those were those were gro- going around for a bit, um, and then obviously Tom Holland in the lead, just seeing seeing a little baby Tom Holland in these situations just broke my heart. Uh, so yeah, I just I I ended up liking the direction that they went. I liked the feel of it. Uh, I don't know. It just it feels I, I, so much about it feels kind of tailored to my personal sensibilities. This is one of the ones I kind of wanted to see but missed. Um, so my number one of 2020 is The Gentleman. Um, this probably wouldn't be my favorite film of a, of a normal year. There'd probably be a couple under it, but it would definitely be my top 10. Guy Ritchie's just one of those directors. There's a handful like Shyamalan, Snyder, Abrams, like guys that when they're in top form, they're just, they're just, they're just like on my rhythm and I am just completely in heaven watching their movies. And, and Guy Ritchie is like that when he's when, when he's working, when his films are working. And that's what 90% of this film is. It's just beautifully dressed, sophisticated people either sitting around talking or just doing violence in very, very cool, beautiful people ways. And they're so much better than I am. And I'm just, 
I just <laughs> just want to watch them do these things and and you know use the most vulgar language you've ever heard in your life like it was Shakespeare. Um, it's perfect. This just we we talked about it. this. The cast is so great. There's so, the dialogue is exquisite. Uh, I think some of the plotting, I don't know if it actually makes sense. I've seen it three times. I'm still not sure how some of the things worked out. Like it, it, it's, it's probably not as tight as a film like snatch or, um, lock stock and two smoking barrels, very similar films. But I think it be in terms of just pure sophistication and personality, it beats those out. Um, yeah, it's just, it's it's a joy to watch. Like I, I I just have to probably just keep repeating that if I talked about it more. Um, I had so much fun with it. I'm just, you know, Guy Ritchie, he, he stumbled a bit. I like, I like, I like, uh, the King Arthur movie kind of, but it's a mess. Aladdin was a thing that happened. And, but it, I'm, it's, I'm glad to see that, you know, he see, he can still do it. He can still, you know, you know, fire, you know, he, he, he can still fire on all cylinders and give us another, you know, yet another delightful, ridiculous, uh, crime film. Um, and just the whole, notion of a, this this honor system among thieves where you, know, you have like the actual gentlemen who have you know, have the, the honor system and rules but also like the punks in the street and guys like dry eye who try to violate you know try to game the system and and uh, go around and steal things like it just the, the way he kind of played with that idea of the, they're all criminals but just the good the good guys and bad guys within crime and you know and the, the price, the price to be paid for, you know, for for breaking the rules of conduct and all of that. It was it was just so much fun. So that was our favorite films of 2020. Uh, <laughs> it's some of our least favorite, but uh, yeah. So that was our retrospective on 2020. Uh, before we close out, uh, <laughs> I do want to talk about some of the films that we're anticipating for 2021. Uh, this is kind of a fraught exercise because it's pretty much assured that some of these films are going to get moved back. I don't, it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be as ridiculous as uh, all the films that we lost in 2020, just because, you know, some of the, uh, some of the studios are committing to, you know, day and date with streaming and theater releases. And I think some of the studios are just like, it doesn't matter. We got to put it out. <laughs> um, so I don't think we'll have as many films moved, but Morbius just got moved like earlier this week. So I think we're not, we're not going to see all of these this year. But we're gonna do it anyway because I like talking about talking about anticipated movies. All right, so my, my first one is um, Mission Impossible Seven. I don't believe this is coming out this year, but hey, it's on the list. Yeah, so that is also on mine. I am absolutely ready for some more Christopher McQuarrie in front of my eyes. Yeah. Next one is Black Widow. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I like the aesthetic they're going for. I, I love Scarlett Johansson and the character of Black Widow. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I need some MCU. I need some MCU. You got any MCU for me, James? Uh, <laughs> I don't have it over here. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. The next one is A Quiet Place Part 2. We were like, what, like two weeks away from this yep. or something? We were so close. Um, huh. A Quiet Ooh, Place. close to fa- greatness. Yeah. A Quiet Place was fantastic. The trailer is amazing. I, I cannot wait to see this movie. Yeah. So this is one, whenever it was announced, I, I, I wasn't particularly interested, uh, but it's it's Killian Murphy that has me more interested than anything else. I absolutely adore him, uh, and there are some moments in the trailer. Like I, the trailer itself hasn't completely sold me on concept, but there are just some bits during it that I I think are really great. And so I'm I'm definitely ready to finally get my eyes on it. 
Uh, next one is The Suicide Squad. It's a terrible title. I hate, I hate this trend so much of just taking a title and adding the, and now we have a sequel or something. Just, just have, have a backbone, put a two on there. Okay. Or at least give us, you know, a subtitle, but just the, the one stupid. that gets it passed. And I guess it gets it passed also because it's a reboot, but I've forever, I have been waiting for a movie just called the Batman, <laughs> but it's James Gunn. So it's going to be great. And the the the, the uh, sizzle reel they put out at the DC fandom was bonkers, and I love it. Yeah, so. I'm very hyped for whatever this is. Next one is Death on the Nile. Oh yes, this sh- this should have been a 2020 film. I when when we had our trip down there where we talked about uh the final Jason Bourne film, the, I bought the tickets for the release date of Death on the Nile in October, and then <laughs> it got moved. I still came down there. But we didn't get to watch Death in the Nile together, and I'm so sad. And the trailer for this is beautiful. It, it, I was gorgeous. The, the cinematography, the, the Depeche Mode song. I, I cannot wait until they they release that cover because I need it in my life. You know, it's so funny. So many when sequels are billed as like this is like the thing you know, but darker and sexier. Like that accurately describes this. But for once, it's exactly I mean, like it's it, Gal Gadot. So yes, it, it, like it's working. <laughs> for me. Like this is this is working. Like I I love everything about what I'm seeing. Yeah, if it could just capture like a tiny bit of the emo- the raw emotion that I felt for that first film. It'll be good. It's just a little bit of fun too. Like, I if this isn't good, I'm gonna. I, what am I gonna do, James? What are we gonna do with our lives? I don't know. Uh, next one is um, the King's Man. Also another film, uh, most anticipated film from 2020. I I really like this these previous two films. Um, even the, even the, even the Golden Circle. I know everyone hates that movie, but I enjoyed it. Uh, Matt, I I I really enjoy Matthew Vaughn's aesthetic. Um, and I, I the trailers. Uh, just I love everything I see in those movies. The way he shoots action just blows my mind. I I'm a, a big action guy. So just the actions. Just, I just want to watch this for the action scenes, kind of. I and I I like the World War One aesthetic. And we we don't really get. Have we ever had a fun World War One action movie before? They're usually all super miserable for a reason. But I think it's about time we had a fun movie set there. Now I haven't even seen the two, but this trailer has me really wanting to watch those two so I can watch this for the reasons you're saying like aesthetically it looks so cool yeah the trailer with war pigs was epic um yes. next one is old this is M. Night Shyamalan's next thriller I know absolutely nothing about this movie but I've enjoyed his uh, previous three films so I'm just desperately hoping that he continues his winning streak yeah I, I think it's over the last few years and actually probably pretty well documented on the podcast itself I, I never went into like the full-blown Shyamalan hate phase, but I've had my love for him rekindled in a really big way these past several years. And I don't know, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a full-fledged Shyamalan apologist now. I, I don't think, like I think he had an unfortunate string, but he's, he's absolutely back in, in my good graces and I'm hyped for anything he does. Mm-hmm. Next one is Luca. This is a, the next Pixar film is coming out like in like the summer. It's really soon. Uh, it's from Enrico uh, Casarosa. He's the director of the short La Luna, which is delectable. Uh, but I don't know much about it. It's like this two you know, like the childhood friends in the Italian countryside or something, which is not what I expect from a Pixar film. But uh, I really 
no, it's, it's Pixar, and I loved his previous short. So, next one is Last Night in Soho, Ugh. an Edgar Wright horror film starring Anya Taylor Joy. Yes. Oh man, the the amount of hype I have for this is just out. Like it's it's astronomical. I'm so ready to see what horror is through the eyes of Edgar Wright. Uh, next one is uh, Wrath of Man. This is uh, the next Guy Ritchie crime movie. It's What's weird about this is the release date is January 15th. It's supposed to be out in three days from recording. It's not coming. It's definitely not coming out then. And there's no other news as far as releases. So I don't know what the status of this film is, but it's, it's supposed to come out this, this year. Uh, it's a remake of a French film called Cash Truck. Um, I don't know much about it. It's got uh, Guy Ritchie is reuniting with Jason, Jason Statham. So I mean, you, you heard us talk about the gentleman, so you know why why I'm excited for this. <laughs> this is actually the very first I'm hearing of this, but I consider me hyped. Uh, next up is uh, Top Gun Maverick, another 2020, uh, another 2020 film. Uh, I'm a big fan of Joseph Kaczynski, Oblivion, uh, Only the Brave. He's done some incredible work. He's, I think, one of the great visualists of our time. Uh, the trailers are absolutely bonkers. It's Tom Cruise. Again, Yes. I have no relationship with the first Top Gun. I've never seen it. I've seen it. I also have no relationship with it. But <laughs> uh, but I I've seen Tron Legacy, which I think is okay. It's got its it's got its big champions. I, I liked it pretty well. But I I spend a weird amount of time rethinking about how much I like Oblivion a lot. So the I've I've been won over just by the trailers alone. Well, some of the jet stuff is just incredible. So I, I'll have to finally watch Top Gun and, and get ready for this one. N- another film that Macquarie is heavily involved in. Uh, next up is uh, Dune, another 2020 film. Uh, yep, yeah, it's uh, Den- Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not as in love with him as everyone else in the world, but I still love him a lot. And I read the Dune book, didn't love it, but still... <laughs> I can't wait to see this movie. Yeah, this is this is 100% my most hyped. Uh, I'm gonna try to after I'm finished reading Harry Potter, uh, I'm going to try. This delay has helped me. I'm gonna try to read the the book before the movie comes out. I am as in love with Denis Villeneuve as everybody else. So then you're else's. definitely not reading it before the movie comes out. Oh, all right, shut up. Trust me, <laughs> I'll prove everybody wrong. I'll prove you all wrong. Uh, yeah. But anyway, the I love the trailer. I love the cast. I love the aesthetic. I'm just over the moon for this. Uh, then there's No Time to Die. Um, I am, as of uh, earlier last year, about mid last year, uh, James Bond fan. So I want to see it. Also, the trailers are crazy. Like there's some of the stunts that happen in the trailers. Like I want to see it just for that. Yeah, it's weird. I think the trailers themselves have been like bad to okay. But what's with like just in terms of how they've been edited, they just they feel weirdly drawn out and sequenced. But what's actually in like what it's actually showing, I think, has been super impressive. And I'm kind of I've just been surprised that you know like whenever the Fallout trailers happen, every, like so many individual moments just become these huge things. But Nobody seems to be talking about all of these incredible moments in this trailer. I'm when the car comes over and hits the tree and, and oh, flies behind Daniel Craig and he spins so around the machine cool. gun, machine guns as it comes by. Like I, I don't even how do you even think of things like that and shoot it and like the the, the way I don't like I, I don't know how much of the those secret scenes are CGI versus practical, but they're so well integrated. 
And next one is uh, Chaos Walking, another 2020 film. This was on my okay. This was on my most anticipated for 2020 uh, because of Doug Lyman. And then my anticipation for it, for it slowly dwindled as the year went on because it's all the bad news, you know, the delays, the reshoots, the you know the things people were saying about the the the, the, the film pre reshoots, and then the trailer came out, and I re- I really love that trailer. So I, my excitement is up again. So I, I, I don't know what to expect from this movie. I don't, I am afraid it's going to be terrible, but I, I, my, my excitement is still there. Daisy Ridley, the blonde hair doesn't entirely work, but I love her <laughs> and Tom Holland. Like Doug Lyman makes fun movies. So I, I'm expecting it to at least be fun. And, and the stories I've read the books story is pretty decent too. So. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wasn't convinced this was going to happen until the trailer. I was, I was thinking, like, they've, they've got the finished product, but it's going to get tucked away somewhere and nobody's ever going to see it. Uh, I, <coughs> I I wasn't a huge fan of the trailer, but I absolutely love Mads Mikkelsen. And if he's willing to go and put that weird fur coat on... <laughs> Then I, if that's something he's willing to do, then I will make my way to a theater to see why. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one is Infinite. This is the next Anton Fuqua movie uh, starring uh, Mark Wahlberg. I don't know much about it. It's some kind of sci-fi, I think. Uh, Anton Fuqua is just a really fun, reliable director. So, yep. Um, next one is uh, The Beatles Get Back. This is a, a Peter Jackson documentary on uh, The Beatles. I guess it's like uncovered, uh, uncovered archive footage of like one of their late late career um recording sessions um did you see uh they shall not be rolled did, did you see that i i have not seen it yet but i've really wanted to see it and i i heard so about good. this i i've heard nothing but phenomenal things about it and i only heard about this documentary a couple of weeks ago but it has me really excited because i've i've actually really started becoming more interested in documentaries, especially documentaries from like narrative filmmakers that I really love who mm. also, you know, spend a significant amount of their career doing documentaries. Ron Howard's it's, doing a bunch recently. I saw that. And, and so like, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know. It's a, it is a medium that I have not engaged with in any real meaningful way. And Me so either. I, oh, sorry, go ahead. it was, so I, I want to put more effort into familiarizing myself with it. Uh, and and just all of these different, apparently you know, phenomenal pieces of art that I've just you know been ignoring for so long, and I, I think it's super cool. You know, we're we're both Hobbit apologists, and, and we both love the King Kong. Like I, he's never fallen out of my good graces, but it is cool. I think like it, it'd be neat if he just became this acclaimed documentarian. Uh, I'm. He's already such a such a fantastic historian, and all the work he's put into restoration and uh, like saving different uh, pieces of history and old church. Like he's he's done a lot of really cool things, and the guy cares about history. So I'm very interested in in what all he plans on doing on this new path. Yeah, um, like I don't really watch that many documentaries. Nothing against them. It's just whenever I have an opportunity to watch something, I'd rather watch a narrative film. But uh, they shall not grow old was astonishing i thought just not like just the technicals alone was incredible what he was able to do with that but the story he told about you know the, the, the these british soldiers in world war one was so moving um you know please please you know give give us another narrative film peter jackson but i'll take this film in, in the in the meantime uh 
Then there's a West Side Story, Steven Spielberg, a musical. Yep. I can't um, believe that this hasn't been a thing before, but now that those two, that that name has been thrown around with that genre, I am very excited to see what this is like. A couple more that don't have any release dates, but they're they're supposedly set for 2021 releases. Uh, again, the, the, again, these two films that were on our um, on our 2020 list is uh, the two films from uh, Taylor Sheridan, Those Who Wish Me Dead, which he's writing and directing, and Without Remorse, which he wrote. Very excited. Without Remorse is one of my favorite novels. Um, yeah, it's the the the, the uh, what's the Jack Ryan universe or something. Yes, yeah. It's directed. It's directed by the guy who did um, the Sicario Two, which wasn't an amazing movie. But I thought it was pretty well directed. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's I'll I'll agree with that. I Sicario yeah. One to me is one of the greatest I mean, films ever made. It, it, ever. It's hard to compare with you know the first one was Denis Villeneuve, but as far as you know, just tense thriller work, it was good. Uh, but I'm really I Wind River was horrifying and amazing so i'm really excited yes. to see what he does you know with the, you know with even even sharper directorial chops um angelina jolie is the star i believe uh then there's the two snyder films army of the dead yes 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 and the snyder cut i can't believe it's actually happening but, uh... I... oh, what a journey what an absolute mad journey so oh. Yeah, that that there was a lot of movies. I didn't expect to go that long, but you, you know, if they all come out, this will be a, this will be a good year, and uh, they, we won't be as as uh, as uh, strapped for films uh, in our best of twenty twenty one episode. Yeah. And I will say, you know, in in my defense, uh, I did try to like whenever I was watching new films, usually it was things like The Vast of Night or Emma. It was these movies that I heard good things about and decided to to watch. But I really used 2020, I think, in a productive way to catch up on a, on tons of classics, like some Kurosawa, 12 Angry Men for the first time, Citizen Kane for the first time. Uh, so it Godzilla movies. Godzilla movies. You know what? I'm going to throw you under the bus. You remember... <laughs> Your final words in our, our recording for uh, Terminator 2, he said, I'm going to use these two weeks to catch up on a bunch of uh, 2020 movies. <laughs> and go to, go to his letterbox. There's about 30 Godzilla movies <laughs> in the last two weeks and like two 2020 movies. So I'm not sorry, James. It had to be okay. said. <laughs> All of that is fair. And I can't necessarily rebut any of it. But in my defense... I did. I bought the Godzilla Criterion thing. I wanted to finally watch through them all, and they are so digestible. Sometimes I walked. I put them on while I was working from home. I was doing other things. Sometimes there are times like I just I want to watch. Like I, I'm all basically perpetually wanting to watch a movie. There's never. I'm never in a state where that's not something I'm unwilling to do. But there are times where I just felt super burnt out after work, where I was technically not having to do anything else, but. I still wanted to watch a movie and not think too much, and those are absolutely perfect for that. So, yeah, as work got pretty pretty intense, Godzilla became <laughs> the way I numbed the work pain. That's what I'm like with uh, 80s slashers. Um, but still! <laughs> uh, yeah, and while we're bashing on James, can you please, for the love of all that is good and holy, finish The Deathly Hallows? I, dude, I have been I'm doing getting... a podcast with you for four and a half years and I've I've wanted so desperately to talk about the Harry Potter films I'm getting genuinely close like I was halfway through it uh like uh several days ago 
I am like a I'm like two thirds through it now. I am I, I'm working ten hour days and I'm trying to watch other movies and it's life <laughs> is too much. But Harry Potter, like Harry Potter is this is like a series this podcast was born to cover. I know. We will get there. I'm not holding my breath because then I would die. <laughs> so that was our retrospective on 2020. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd like to ask you to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. If you want to follow the podcast, you can uh, follow us on Facebook as at Franchise League Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Franchised Pod. And you can find all our all our episodes at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow all your uh, Godzilla viewings, James? Uh, you can do that over on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, and yeah, there's a ton of them. <laughs> it's, I'm almost <laughs> done. I'm two movies away from finishing my Criterion set. Uh, and then I'm going to take a break before I go into the Heisei era. But anyways... Uh, you can also find the both of us over on The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group on Facebook. Uh, we have a ton of conversation going on over there. Every time we think that content is going to start being a little bit more sparse, something massive happens. And so like we're, we're, real, we're at this, the beginning of this High Republic era that's got a lot of people excited. Got and, the first book lined up. And I'm, I'm hearing good things. So... We've already got that, but on top of that, there's this whole slew of shows Disney announced. So if if you're still excited for Star Wars and all of this content, and you want to talk about it in a way that facilitates positive conversation, uh, definitely join us over there. I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green, and uh, you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I put out uh, trailer mashups and movie-based music videos and cool stuff like that. Um, so next week, we're going back to the Terminator series with uh, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. Um, that's a movie. It is indeed a movie. And we will see, we will talk about it. So until uh, next week, we will see you uh, in the apocalypse. Again. <laughs>